Greetings, listeners. Hope everybody's doing well. Uh, now's the time everybody's dealing with the holidays, getting ready for the holidays, so it's a little chaotic. So actually, um, I haven't done an episode in a couple weeks, so this one may be a bit extensive because I put a few things together uh, throughout the different weeks, as I've always explained, as things come to mind or I'm dealing with certain topics. I like to make notation of them, so when I do get around to doing a podcast, I could discuss them with... Uh, with the listeners. So, I don't know, today may be a long episode. We'll see how it rolls out. We'll we'll see how it goes because there's a few things that I want to um, touch on and a few things that I've been dealing with, a few things I've witnessed, and a few things I want to make notation of and kind of discuss a bit. One of the things that keeps popping in, in my head that I was thinking about it that's been a, a reoccurring theme lately that we've seen a lot of these podcasts with um, informants and uh, people who cooperated and now they're doing all these podcasts and like these, I guess we would call them uh, social media tours, you know, where they're making the rounds on different shows and talking about their stories. And, and it got me thinking because one of the main themes that I notice each one tries to to say and what they try to portray is how they're repented and how they're turned over a new leaf and you know they they changed and they they regret their past life so to speak and in thinking about that I was wondering you know is it just how far does that regret go is it a matter of now when they're speaking on the social media outlets or they're playing to a jury that they act as if it is a new regime and a new person, or are they taking the step where they have reached out to the victims who they may have affected when they were involved in doing these bad deeds? So let's say, you know, they robbed someone's house, or they shot somebody, or they killed somebody. I'm wondering, being that they're so sorry for these past sins and these past misdeeds, and they want to turn their life around, and they want to make a change, did they take that step to go meet with the families of the victims? Did they apologize to the people? Whether somebody's going to forgive them or not is a different story, but did they try to clear that aspect of their conscience? Did they try to show... I know when somebody has you know, an addiction problem, they, they have those 12 steps, and I believe one of those steps is you have to go and talk to whoever you wronged. And that's when somebody's legitimately trying to repair their life and build it back up and trying to make a change. So it has me pondering, wouldn't that play over if somebody is trying to be reborn again, so to speak, and change their ways and become a new person, and they truly are sorry for what they have done? Wouldn't one of those honest actions be to meet with the people you have wronged? If you've ended somebody's life, would you want to meet with their family? and explain to them that you're not the same person and you would want to meet with them and try to explain how sorry you are and the fact that you you are changed and that you're not the individual that once was, wouldn't that be part of that change and that new persona and the new person you're trying to become? Or are you just trying to change as far as when you're talking to a jury or when you're on social media, or, or when you're doing interviews where you're telling everybody you once were a bad guy, but you're no longer a bad guy. Is it just for the masses, or is it something that you really are trying to seek forgiveness for from the people that it matters to, from the people whose lives were affected? And again, wh- whatever that may be, you know, whether you did end somebody's life, whether you did rob somebody, beat somebody, whatever it may be that you apparently are changed from, that you wouldn't do those things any longer and that's not your character any longer, wouldn't part of the process of changing that behavior be accepting what you did and then reaching out to those that were affected? Not to strangers who don't care. I mean, why would that matter? Why would you care if strangers think you're reborn or you're changed or you're repented, whatever whatever you are, why would you care what strangers think about that? If you're truly embarrassed internally, and you truly want to seek refuge, and you truly want to seek 
forgiveness or acknowledgement that you're a different person. Wouldn't you want that from the people who are most affected by your actions? I mean, that would make sense to me. If I wronged somebody, I really couldn't care what the general public thought about how I felt about it. I would want the person I wronged to forgive me if that's what was bothering me. If I felt that I was such a poor person prior to one day, and then now I'm a totally different person, I would want to reach out to all those individuals I wronged when I was in my bad way and explain to them. And again, whether they forgive you or not is irrelevant, but if that's something you need to do to clean your soul and to really prove that you are this changed individual, I think that's where it would start. And I don't think that happens too much. I don't know. And you may be sensing a sense of sarcasm in my tone, and trust me, I'm giving it, because I don't think that happens too often. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't seen those families coming forward or people affected saying, hey, this is a new person now. They really changed. They're really making a change. They're doing all this good. They came and asked for my forgiveness. They changed uh, their ways. We don't forgive them, but they're trying. Now, I don't think that happens. So it really makes one question, how, how transformed and rehabbed are these individuals? Or is it the fact that they just got caught doing whatever they were doing, they didn't want to have to be accountable, and their ticket out of accountability was to give up a bigger fish, a bigger target. So that's what they did. They didn't have a coming to Jesus moment. They didn't have an epiphany. They didn't have a desire to change their ways. They had a desire to self-preserve and to protect themselves and to once again put themselves first and save themselves and ruin another person's life just so they didn't have to be accountable. I don't know, to me that makes more sense based on the actions that follow. You know, you can't be that sorry for something if you're doing these publicity tours and you're doing all these different interviews and shows and forums and podcasts, whatever it is, but you're not reaching out to the people who were really affected by your past behavior. They're not even an afterthought. They're not even being addressed on the shows. I mean, that's another thing. When when they're doing these podcasts, they're never asked in-depth questions about their past, about what did they specifically do? What were their bad actions that they did that they're so sorry for that they want to change their ways now? What exactly did they do? And that's because these, you know, they're controlling the narrative. It's very easy to do an interview when you're controlling the narrative. You're only going to give all the positive. You know, you're not, you're not going to dive into any of the negative. So it's very easy to come across sounding sincere Sounding, you know, as if you are trying to make a change, as if you're try- trying to make good, as if your your new mark on the world is one in which contains positivity and goals and objectives. It's very easy to sound that way and come across that way when you're controlling how things are played out. But if you really start diving into your past and you start diving into your past actions and things you may have done, hurt people robbed people, beat people, kill people, whatever it may be. Things change a little bit then. Then you're not as, you know, calm, cool, and collective. Then you're thrown off a little bit. Then you really see how sorry somebody really is. When they don't want to talk about things and they want to ignore certain things, that doesn't tell me they're too sorry because that just means you're avoiding the truth. You're avoiding who you really were. Let's say you are a new person. Why would you avoid that? You have to embrace it. If I felt 15 years ago I was a piece of garbage for some reason or another, I would have to own that if I felt that way. If I truly felt I wasn't a good person 15 years ago and now I'm a different person, I would have to own that. I would have to own everything I did. I would have to explain everything I did. And I would have to explain I had a different mentality then that wasn't who I am now. Something changed in me. Something clicked. I was a bad person. I did this. This is what I did to people. I tried to reach out to them. I would reach out to whoever I affected. I would apologize. I would acknowledge them. I wouldn't ignore it. I wouldn't run from it. So, you know, that that continues to stick in my mind because I constantly hear about how people have, you know, changed. They, They changed their ways. They're not who they once were. They decided 
that the life they had in the past isn't the life they currently want now and they only want to do good and they were doing bad in the past. Now, if all that's true, you have to make do then. If you want to change who you are, you have to make do. You have to follow up. You have to acknowledge it. You have to face those who you, you have wronged. That's my view on it anyway. Obviously, they have a different view on it because none of those things were done. Now it's just about making sure that the YouTubers and the podcasters and the uh, blog readers and the forum readers, that all of those individuals believe you. That all of those people are satisfied. Doesn't matter what the victims' families believe or the victims themselves believe. That doesn't matter. It only matters with what this fan base now, this new social media empire fan base believes. And I don't know how the public falls for that and doesn't ask these kind of questions. Unless they do and they just don't care, I don't know. But I do see a lot of the time they're very quick to pick apart the character and the personality and the accusations about those that were informed on and those that may be doing jail time. They're very quick to pick apart those characteristics, but never, never their own personal misdeeds. And I think that's just an observation I wanted to talk about and vent a little bit about because I find it frustrating and I find it hard to believe that I'm the only one who thinks of these things. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners do. And, and I figured by talking about it, you know, it, people are saying, yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking. So I wanted to kind of connect with those who had the kind, same kind of thought process as me on that. Now, the other thing I want to segue into is um, this whole COVID thing as it relates to the BOP system. Because I wouldn't believed how this plays out until I've dealt with it personally. And I, I got to explain this in detail because I want to get it right. I want to make sure I'm... I'm giving to the listeners exactly uh, an accurate picture of how this plays out. Now, before I dive into how this the COVID plays out within the system, I, one thing that just sticks out that I've read about this past week, and you could Google it, you'll see, I'm not exaggerating. Recently, they let a terrorist out on a compassionate release. A terrorist, mind you, who's responsible for hundreds of deaths because he was obese. So basically, because the guy's overweight, he gets out on a compassionate release and he's a terrorist. I don't know if there's any more of a danger to society than a terrorist. I couldn't even believe what I was reading. It was in the Daily News. You could just Google terrorist, uh, compassionate release, and, and you'll see it. And I have witnessed case after case of any Italians who were charged with RICO get denied for a compassionate release who had a couple years left, who had, you know, a few months left, who had more time left. But the point is, denied one after the other. If you're an Italian, you were charged with RICO, you were denied one after the other. Now you have a terrorist who was obviously charged with terrorism, and he gets left out, let out on a compassionate release under this whole COVID situation because he's overweight. I need somebody to explain that to me. And also, you can look up pedophiles and being let out based on COVID. You won't be able to find one Italian who was charged with RICO being let out. And just for, you know, the public alone to understand, it should be either an all or nothing rule. Obviously, I think certain people should be let out over others. That's my own personal opinion. But let's say you don't agree with that opinion, no problem. Then it should be one or the other. It should be either they, no, nobody gets out, or then you have to let out certain people who meet a threshold. You can't tell me that a terrorist meets a more conservative threshold than an Italian-American being charged with RICO. It's impossible. And you can't tell me a terrorist poses less of a danger to society than an Italian being charged with RICO. You cannot tell me that. And I don't believe anybody who ha who has common sense and thinks logically would believe that. So what would be the basis that that one would get it and one would not? One who's a terrorist would get it and one who isn't a terrorist would not. I can't wrap my head around that for the life of me. And it's completely acceptable. People don't talk about it. You have to read about these things. 
And when you read about them, you don't believe it. And there's really no distinction. They don't give any rationale behind it. They'll just deny the individual. When uh, somebody goes for the release, if they're charged with RICO, if they're alleged to be part of an organization, they've been getting denied left and right. And if they have more serious, I would think there's more serious health concerns and health risks than being overweight. You have a lot a lot of these individuals have diabetes. They're very old. They have a lot of health ailments affecting their well-being. So if they did get COVID, it'd be a problem. And yet, a terrorist who's overweight superseded all of that, and he gets let out. And again, don't take my word for it. Just just research it. You know, go on the web and, and and put in those keywords. It's out there. And you could look up several of those compassionate releases that took place with a lot of various crimes. I just don't understand how these crimes trump certain crimes. When you have somebody who's an elderly individual, specifically, who's charged with gambling, but it was part of RICO and he was Italian. He got denied. But it was gambling was the charge. But it was a RICO charge. He gets denied. And this person had all kinds of health ailments. I mean, serious, serious situations. Blood clots, diabetes. He's in his 80s. And he gets denied. I believe he has two years left and he gets denied. But the terrorist gets out. You see things like that and it's very frustrating because it really does show how one-sided this this system can be. And the bigger names and the bigger targets and the bigger headlines get treated differently. And I talk about it all the time. You don't have to agree with me, but if you believe in justice, you do have to believe that everybody should be treated equally. Everybody should get the same rights. Everybody should get the same opportunities equally and go through the justice system in the same manner. One should not go through the exact same system and be subjected to harsher conditions and harsher rulings based on reasons that have nothing to do with the justice system and how the law works. Instead, they have to do with race or it has to do with their ethnicity. That's, that's not the system we should be involved in. That is not the system we're supposed to be involved in, is what I should say. That is not what the Constitution was written for. And I don't know how many times I have to say it about Lady Justice being blind and how it's a, all we're asking for is justice for all. I, I could quote, give you quote after quote after quote, and all those quotes sound great, and people put them up on their social media, including my firm will put those quotes up. But if they're not followed through on, they're meaningless. They don't mean anything. And people need to understand that. Whether you don't like a certain group of people whether you don't agree with charges, the law has to treat everybody fairly. For example, I don't agree that pedophiles should be let out on any kind of compassionate release. Okay? And that may sound hypocritical, and it is. But guess what? I'm not making those choices. I'm not making those choices because to me there is a scale. And... And pedophiles are on the bottom of it. They don't get any little rapists. They're all on the bottom of it. So to me, I would look at things a lot differently. But I know that about myself, so I don't make those decisions. So that's why I'm not a judge. I'm not in a position to make those choices. I don't have to. I'm not controlling somebody's life. But if you sign up to be a judge, or you sign up to go by the law, you can't have that gauge that I have. You have to go by the law. You can't let emotions affect you. You have to rule logically. And I'm very self-aware that there's certain things I can't rule logically on. I can't judge logically. I hear charges like that, and I see charges like that affecting kids, affecting women. I I cannot make a rational decision on it. But I'm self-aware about it, and I'm accountable. And thankfully, I don't make those choices, so people don't have to worry about it. They could say, oh, well... You know, he, he's not fair in that sense. That's right. I'm not fair when it comes to that. It is what it is. Is it a fault? Uh, maybe. Maybe it is to some people. But I'm honest about it. I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't try to 
be untruthful. I don't try to paint it a different way. I believe those making those decisions need to be a better person than I am when it comes to following the law. They need to go by justice. They need to go by the law as blind, and they need to make the decision based on the facts, based on if somebody's immune system's compromised, whatever it is to determine if somebody's eligible for that compassionate release, it has to be across the board. When you see them start picking and choosing terrorists over RICO charges and pedophiles over RICO charges, I can't wrap my head around that. And it's like I said earlier, it's either all or nothing. Those who put that robe on, they have to understand they're at a higher level than people like myself who would be swayed by personal emotions and would be swayed by personal beliefs and my own personal moral compass on what I think is right and what I think is wrong. That's not how you rule on those cases. You have to rule based on the conditions. You have to rule fairly across the board based on who's susceptible. Is it borderline now becoming cruel and unusual punishment? Are people being stripped of their human rights? Are they being jeopardized? Are their life Is their life in danger now because of the circumstances of this COVID and because of these underlying conditions? You have to strip away any personal attachments you have to make that ruling. And that's not being done. It's clearly not being done. You could just open the paper and see it's not being done. You could just check PACER and see who applied for a compassionate release and who received it. And that'll give you a good gauge to show it's not being done the right way. It's being done based on bias and agenda and headlines and targets. That's what it's being, that's what's being weighed here. And the public, unfortunately, don't really say much about it. I mean, even with the article with the terrorists getting let out, you don't really hear much about it. You don't hear Americans upset about that. Instead, you see the headlines about organized crime, who got denied, who didn't make it. Those make the big headlines. But a terrorist being released was a little blurb in the Daily News. That's all I really saw about it. I didn't look that deep. But I didn't see it, and I, and I looked for it. It's not as if I just happened to come across it. I believe somebody actually sent it to me, and then I, I searched for it. So it goes to show what makes the headlines and what doesn't and how these decisions are being made. And to me, that shows a lot of true colors and characteristics of the judges making these decisions. They're ruling that certain individuals could get out who have less of a vulnerability than others. That, that doesn't make any sense. If you're making a ruling based on vulnerability and based on percentage of somebody getting sick and then having complications and, God forbid, passing away from this illness, then some, somebody who's less susceptible should not be let out before somebody who is more susceptible. It just doesn't make any sense at all. It's not logically. It doesn't balance you know, the old saying, it, uh, it, it doesn't pass the smell test, and that doesn't pass it. Common sense would dictate if that's how they're, they're ruling, common sense would dictate that's how it's got to play out. I don't know, when you just see decisions being made that aren't being made properly and are being made that are so blatantly one-sided and so blatantly have an agenda and are, and are completely biased, it's, it's very frustrating because they're not weighing the facts. They're not weighing what should be weighed to make a decision as to whether somebody should be let out to prevent them from potentially getting a disease that could end their life. When you see decisions being made that disregard that train of thought and only focus on whatever agenda this person may have, it's frustrating. And I believe what's even more frustrating is the public don't see that aspect of it. They don't see how it plays out. And getting into what the public don't see along these COVID lines, I'm going to get into a little bit of detail of how it actually works. And I'm going to give you some firsthand experience with it and what's how I've tried handling it and the responses I got and the answers I got. And I'm going to read some official responses, which are going to I think they would blow your mind because you're not going to believe it in the, in the sense that you wouldn't believe that this is what takes place in America. Now, as we all know, 
COVID's running rampant in, in, in a lot of the jails. One of the jails that's running rampant is MDC in Brooklyn. Now in that jail, and again, you could go on the web, you could look it up, just put in MDC Brooklyn and COVID. You'll see there's been a lot of articles recently. Originally, they lied about the number of cases they had. Then they had this massive outbreak. And it's going on right now. Everybody in there is pretty much on, on lockdown. And the way it works is when you're getting ready to be moved to a, a permanent facility, because MDC is somewhat of a temporary facility. So a lot of the inmates there, some stay there, I believe, for their whole time they have to serve, depending on how long. But the majority, it's almost as if a temp- it's a temporary layover, so to speak. You'll, you'll do a certain amount of time there. And then you get transferred to a long-term facility, wherever you're designated. And I talked about this a little bit on the last podcast. So when you're getting ready to get moved, they put you in a quarantine unit, they call it, okay? Now, the quarantine unit, you have to go there and everybody has to almost dry out, so to speak, where you wait there to make sure you don't have COVID. You get tested, you make sure you don't have COVID. Now, Brooklyn has a huge major outbreak. So everybody's on lockdown. Inmates can't make calls. Legal calls are chaotic. You'll make a legal call. Then the inmate doesn't call. You don't get a reason why. You're stuck going back and forth. So now if you have a loved one in there or a client in there, you want to find out your client's status. You want to make sure your client or your loved one didn't contract this disease. So what do you do? You try calling, right? You just want to know, and in the calls, you're, you're always very, you know, my style is I'm always very courteous. I try to be respectful. I try to be professional. I just try to ask my questions. I just want to know. I understand you have this inmate. Uh, his loved ones are concerned about his well-being. I want to know, is, does he, is he okay? Did he contract COVID? Because nobody's heard from him. We're trying to set up the legal calls. We need to speak with him. The last two legal calls got canceled. Uh, somebody's going to get back to you, somebody's going to get back to you. That's the runaround they give you, right? So now the calls don't work because for some reason that's too complicated of a question for somebody to ask. I guess they can't feel the question that in depth if you're just asking about somebody's well-being. So now you move on to step two. You implement the emailing phase. You get all the contact emails. You try to email questions. Again, all on, on, on my end, all we're trying to find out We try to find out the well-being of somebody who's at that facility. So I understand they're already going to hit me with this whole privacy thing. Well, there's privacy, certain things we can't answer. I understand that. So I would ask two general questions. One is a little more specific, one's general. I asked a question, I need to know if this inmate has contracted COVID. That's the first, I just want a yes or no. Second part of the question If an inmate, this is a general question now, if an inmate has contracted COVID, what is the protocol at your facility when that happens? Basically, I want to know what do they do? Somebody got diagnosed with COVID, what do you do for it? Is the inmate taken out of quarantine? Is the inmate taken to an infirmary? Is he put into a special unit? I want to make sure that the person is getting the care they need. Now, one would think That's a simple, legitimate inquiry, correct? And you're entitled to that as a family member, as a lawyer, whatever it may be that you're connected to that person, you're entitled to an answer from that, right? Common sense, everybody would think that. I bet the public thinks if that happens, the jail is going to tell you exactly what's going on. Well, you're 100% wrong. The jail's not going to tell you anything. And I'm going to read you their, their official response. Now, I'm a hound when it comes to that. I'll email somebody a thousand times if I don't get my answer. Uh, in hopes that they just say, just shut this guy up so he stops emailing. So I'll keep emailing just to basically try to get what I can. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but I'm not going to stop. So I keep emailing. Family members keep emailing. Lawyers keep emailing. Everybody's trying to find out what's going on. One by one, we're all getting back the exact same boilerplate response, and I'm going to read it to you. All right, one of the first kickbacks I got It is not the policy of the Bureau of Prisons to provide information that is exempt from disclosure or that violates the Privacy Act. And then they go on to say, we'll follow up on the status of the legal call. I trust this has been responsive. 
Well, you trust wrong because it's not responsive at all. It doesn't tell me anything. I'm trying to find out if somebody has COVID. All you have to do is answer either yes or no. That's really not that complicated. I don't know why that would be so confusing. It's as if I'm dealing with a robot. So now I obviously go back and forth. I probably spent, sent another 20 emails in that interim. And I keep labeling each email, you know, number one, number two, number three, because I want them to see how many times I'm asking the same simplistic question that for some reason cannot be answered. So let me read the other response I get back. Now, remind you, I asked two basic questions that should be easily answered. A, does this inmate have COVID? B, what is the protocol of the MDC when an inmate has contracted COVID-19? I just want to know the protocol. Again, going back to it, very simple. What do you do with the inmate? Do you remove them? Do you put them in an infirmary? Does he get the medication? He or she get the medication they need? What takes place? As a family member, as, again, if you're a lawyer, if this is your client, you need to know what's going on. You want to make sure this the person you care about is okay. And everything, you know, they're all right. And they're getting the help they need if they do have COVID. You don't even know if they have COVID. They won't even tell you that. All you know is there's a huge outbreak in this facility and you can't find out if the person you're inquiring about has contracted the disease or hasn't. And that's acceptable in this country because now here's another response to one of my many emails and they just keep kicking back the same thing. Hello, it is not the policy of the Bureau to provide information that is exempt from disclosure or that violates the Privacy Act. Okay, that sounded familiar, right? Again. Then it goes on to say, the Bureau of Prisons is following CDC guidelines regarding COVID-19. I encourage you to review additional information concerning the Bureau's response to the pandemic at the BOP.gov. So they give the general BOP website and how the entire BOP is handling COVID. Still doesn't answer my question. Still doesn't tell me what goes on in this facility. Still doesn't tell me if the inmate I'm asking about has COVID. And if he does, what's being done about it? And if he doesn't, just let us know so everybody can understand whether he does or he doesn't. Now, other family members who are dealing with this know exactly what I'm talking about, but the general public doesn't. They need to understand what takes place when somebody's in the system. You have no power. Zero. And I tell you, endless calls have been made by myself, by attorneys, by family members, emails, a lot going on to find out two simple questions and we cannot get answers. Nobody could get answers. Now I took it a step farther. And this is a good tip for anybody who's dealing with this. Try to find, go on LinkedIn. LinkedIn's a good network for that. Put in the, the BOP facility you're trying to find out about. Find out who works there. And you could see individuals who work there and you need to contact them. So I found the chief nurse who works at this facility, MDC. I sent her a LinkedIn email. No response. I'm going to keep sending her emails till I get a response. So you got to try to think outside of the box. But guess what? Unfortunately, you're not going to get answers. All we keep doing is having legal teams schedule legal calls. Now, we're trying to facilitate that where they talking to them at least once a week. But to monitor it properly and to make sure he's all right, you want to talk to somebody more than once a week. When a family member doesn't hear from somebody and it's been four, five, six days, you get worried. That's how it works. You get concerned. You want to make sure their physical health's okay and their well-being's all right. And those five, six days, they seem like a long time when you're getting no answers and it's complete quiet. And then you got to wait for the next legal call. you got to talk to the attorney, see what happens, see how the person's doing. All they would have to do is answer these questions. So you mean to tell me, I know I'm not the only one dealing with this. If I'm dealing with it, that means there's probably hundreds of families dealing with it, hundreds of attorneys dealing with it. Across the whole BOP, there's thousands. Who knows how many in the U.S.? I'm just talking in this one facility. So you mean to tell me as Americans, we don't have a right to know how our loved one is doing, how our client's doing, we, we have no right on that? That doesn't affect any privacy act. Are they kidding me? What kind of joke is that? What kind of an excuse is that? It has nothing to do with the privacy act. You, I want to know the protocol of your facility if this person has COVID. And I want to know if this individual has COVID. It's a yes or no. 
not asking you details, want to know yes or no, so the parent, the, the family is prepared, so the family knows what's going on. And all they do is give you these boilerplate responses with no legitimate answer. And here's a problem I have with that. Now, and I made a, a post about this on, on social media. You know, all these organizations, these advocacy groups, where they talk about human rights and how they're protecting human rights and they protect prisoners' rights, that's great. Don't get me wrong. And I know a lot of them do phenomenal work, and they really do. They do great work. They help a lot of people. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not knocking them. What I am saying is this. I've reached out to many of them, a lot of the big ones. I haven't got an email back, and I'll tell you why. I know why. If you're emailing or you're contacting them for an inmate that's Italian and charged with RICO, they're not going to touch it. They're just not going to touch it. They'll go to bat. I've seen them go to bat for, for every other kind of inmate you could think of, every kind of individual, all kinds of charges. I'm sure they have advocacies for terrorists. I wouldn't be surprised after seeing them getting released on compassionate release. All serious, serious crimes people get charged for, and there's advocacy groups who will go to bat for them. And that's a wonderful thing. They should. But now when I go and I ask for just some intervention, just maybe to mediate, because it does help. If you have a group that has your back and and is making calls and is trying to get answers, a lot of these prisons will be put on notice. They don't want to deal with that. They don't want to have to deal with that stuff. So they will get back to you. So I send endless emails and I get zero response, zero acknowledgement. Or I'll get the, uh, you know, where they just placate you. They just tell you what you want to hear, but they don't really get back to you. It's just nonsense. And that's beyond frustrating. You're trying to fight for somebody. You're looking for a little support for groups who claim to be advocates of those who don't get any support. And they go silent because they don't want to touch an individual who is Italian, who was charged with RICO, who may have be accused of some kind of uh, title, belonging to some kind of organization, they don't want to touch that? What kind of av- advocacy group is that? What kind of human rights group? Forget about all that nonsense. We're talking about human rights right now. You're not supposed to get involved with all of that other nonsense. Deal with the human right aspect of it. If somebody's rights are being deprived, and you claim that you support human rights and you fight for people and constitutional rights, shouldn't you jump in regardless of that? That shouldn't mean anything to you if you truly are a person who cares about that. And I'm hoping maybe one will hear me on this and reach out because I've, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to start naming them and saying the ones that didn't, that didn't reach back because that's not my style. But it is frustrating. Anybody could go on the internet and you could find you just search human rights groups advocacy groups, prison uh, right groups, and you'll see all the big ones that come up, those are the popular ones. And when you send them an email, you're looking for some support, you're not looking for anything big, you're not looking for any kind of huge favor, you're just looking for a little support. Hey, can you step in? Can you make a phone call? Can you make an email? We're just trying to find out the protocol. We just want to make sure that inmates, and not only the person I'm concerned about, I just want to know in general, all the inmates at MDC, what are they getting as far as when they are tested positive? What are they getting as far as health, well-being management? What are they receiving? What happens? That's all I'm asking. I don't think that's asking for a lot. But yet, they don't want to touch it. They, these organizations, you go to them, you ask them for the help, they don't want to deal with you. You tell me, how can you claim to be an advocate if that's the role you're going to take? And I'm not on here to blast them. That's not what I'm doing. I'm just bringing it to light. I hope I hope they hear this and say, oh, you know what? We missed it. We didn't see that email. We didn't realize. That's not the case. It has nothing to do with being Italian. It has nothing to do with being charged with RICO. It has nothing to do with that. We just didn't get to the email. I hope that's the case. But when it happens time and again, you can't help to start to think... That there's a reasoning behind it, and it's not just a uh, a coincidence. And it's very frustrating because the general public don't understand how these things play out. They don't understand how helpless you could be as a family member, as uh, 
a professional trying to help a client as an attorney. I even see the attorneys getting frustrated. They're trying to reach out. They're try- and, and they're getting shut down too. They have no power. They're getting the same boilerplate response. How don't they have somebody who deals in human resources, let's say, within these organizations? And they all have these departments. You go, you look it up. They have the human resource department. They have the case management department. They're all worth nothing, though, because they don't give any information. There's no mediation. There's no person that could relay the information to the family, bring them up to speed, let them know what's going on, give them a status. The most they tell you is that ah, the inmate's here, but I don't need them for that. I could go on the BOP website to find out where somebody is. I don't need them for that. You need a real-life person sometimes to talk to for two minutes to get the status on somebody you're asking about. And again, it goes back to where people say they can't do that. They could do it. They do it all the time. You just don't know about it because you you're fortunate if you say they can't do it because you've never experienced it. Those who say you can't do that never experienced it. And this is a prime example of that. I never would have guessed this goes on. Never had to deal with this whole COVID thing and and these quarantines and these outbreaks and how they work. That kind of information should be transparent for all the families, for all those involved. They need to know the protocol involved. And not one representative, not one leader, nobody who runs these facilities, nobody who runs the prisons, nobody lays that out for people to be aware of. Nobody says, okay, if he gets tested positive, this is what happens. This is where they go. This is what this is the regime they're put on. This is the amount of days that they're put on this regime. This is the amount of days that they can't talk to the family members. Again, just communication. There's not one person who puts that together to communicate. Everybody's left guessing, sending emails, making phone calls, trying to find out what's going on, and you get zero answers, zero responses. And you can imagine that's, you know, the family worries about that. Family's concerned about that. Council's concerned about that. Everybody involved, everybody connected to somebody who's on the inside is very concerned about that. But do they care? They don't care at all. I could tell by the responses. They couldn't care less. In their mind, that is what it is. Just another inmate. We'll figure it out. Now, let's say somebody does have COVID and the family doesn't even know about it. When do they find out they have COVID? I don't even want to think when they find out. I mean, how bad does it have to get for you to tell the family if they do have it? And then if they don't have it, you're sick, concerned about it. You don't even know if they have it. Can't even get an answer if they have it. Your best bet, you have to make those weekly calls, which sometimes get canceled. And then you go on a week and a half without speaking, without any communication. And they don't tell you why they're canceled. They just cancel them. So you're waiting. You're waiting for your scheduled time. Phone call gets canceled. They don't tell you when the quarantine's going to end. They don't tell you anything. And people don't realize this is what takes place. This is reality. You know, this isn't fantasy. This is what takes place. This is what goes on in America. Supposed to be a country that's so sophisticated, supposed to human rights and everything and trying to be progressive, trying to move forward. This is dark ages type stuff. This is archaic. To have this type type of infrastructure set in place with no checks and balances, no communication, people less left rambling, trying to figure things out, trying to send emails, trying to uncover contacts on social media, trying to reach out, and all you hit are walls. In today's modern age where you have email, so many different ways of communicating, so many different ways. You, you mean to tell me you can't have a support email for inmate families just to get the status on their loved one during this pandemic just to find out do they have COVID or they don't have COVID? I could set that up in five minutes. You send in the inmate's name, you send in the inmate's number. You show proof that you're related to that person, boom, you get back an answer whether they tested positive enough. Instantly you get back an answer what the protocol is, where they are, if they're being treated, if they're getting what they need, and you'll know how long till you talk to them again. Why is that so difficult? How does that break any kind of privacy? 
It's ridiculous. That's an excuse. It doesn't break any kind of privacy. It's an absolute excuse. They can answer in such a way. They have attorneys there. They have teams of attorneys. It's the, it's the federal government. They could afford the best of the best to word it properly so you're not, you could satisfy all parties. You don't have to break privacy and you could answer the people making the inquiry who are related to the inmate. There's a way of satisfying all parties. They can't tell me there's not. It, again, it's common sense. And to act like, like it's not is just an excuse. And I never would believe this is the process. To get a simple answer, you cannot get it. You could try every angle you want, you just cannot get a simple answer. I never would have believed it unless I dealt with it hands-on. I would have thought there was a much more sophisticated way and a simplistic way, actually, just to get a response. I would have thought this would have been seamless. Especially nowadays. You send an email, you get a response back. That's it. You may not get a huge response. You may not get details. I understand all of that. Again, I'm asking general. As far as protocol goes, it's a general question. And as far as specific, it just has to do with that inmate, whether or whether or not they tested positive. And trust me, as a family member, you'd want to know a lot more. But I see the other side of the coin. I understand they don't have time for those kind of conversations. I understand they can't tell us everything we want to know. As family, you want to know everything, A through Z. But I recognize that. I recognize that would be an issue. So I try to, we, we all try to go for the bare minimum. We just want the bare minimum answered and we can't even get that. Imagine that. And fortunately, a lot of the people don't have to worry about that. They never encountered that. But when you are in the middle of it and then you try to reach out to those who are supposed to be advocates, supposed to be those fighters for those who don't have a voice and they go silent. But yet they want to claim advocacy and how they help this one and help that one. And when you ask them for help, no response email, no return phone call. And I contacted several of them. And again, I'm not the type to put people on blast and say, this is who I contacted, they never got back. I'm going to keep trying and I'm going to hope that maybe my emails got into spam. Maybe my voicemails didn't get heard. Even though I'm not naive, I know better. I'll pretend. I'll, I'll give them that. I'll pretend. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. I'll pretend I don't know better. I'll pretend that I am naive. Just to keep pushing, hopefully, get the answers I'm seeking. Now, all of these things don't deter me. I keep going. That's just my nature. I'm not going to say it's not frustrating. I'm not going to say that it does get a little bit where you want to scream and shout, but I tend to try to keep it professional. I am firm. I try to. I do let them know it's unacceptable, which it is. These kind of responses are unacceptable and unnecessary. What I'm asking for is basically general. I just want one specific question. It has to do with well-being, and I don't understand how they could strip somebody's human rights and strip somebody's family from knowing how their well-being is, and knowing what their status is. I don't understand how these things take place. And I'll keep going. I'll try to uncover more emails. I'll try to uncover more contacts. I'm even going to try reaching out to additional advocacy groups because it could relate to not only who I'm concerned about. As I said earlier, there's a ton of families dealing with this right now, and I'm sure they're faced with the exact same thing. They have no answers. They don't know what's going on. They're trying every outlet they can. And they're having the door shut in their face. And they're frustrated. And rightfully so, they're frustrated. And again, it's not fair. It's not justice. It's not the way the system should work. But people turn a blind eye to it. They don't get involved. They don't make noise about it. Organizations need to make noise. Leaders need to make noise about this. And they don't. For some reason, they don't care. Why they don't care, I don't understand. I guess because they're not in that position. But I'm sure if they had to deal with it, if it hit close to home, they would change their entire perspective on it. And that's what I try to do here. I try to change perspective in the sense that I want you to understand it. I don't want you to change your opinion. There's a big difference. I want to change your perspective, just your way of thinking on it, and then that's up to you whether your opinion changes or not. I just like to lay out the facts as I know them, as they play out. If in turn that alters perspective, alters opinion, great. 
If not, well, at least you heard the other side of it. And then it's up to you to decide which way you align. But at least you can't play ignorance and you can't say you didn't know that happened. I'm telling you it happens. I'm telling you it would take place. I'm giving you examples. I'm reading you emails. I'm letting you know what really takes place. Not, not the BS press releases. Not the beautiful websites. Not the rainbows and the unicorns that play out. Not all of that. The real stuff that takes place. How it works. Where there's flaws. Where there's not. Who those flaws affects. What, what people they affect. And what can we do to change that? The only way to change it is education. Learn about it. Understand it. If enough people start making noise, maybe it will start to implement change. Right now, things are changing for the good. Things are happening. I don't see it on my end. On what I'm dealing with, I don't see it in a lot of ways. I don't see any change. Zero. I see no accountability. I see no answers. I see unjust acts. But we keep pushing. And hopefully, the little bit that I could do on my end will enhance perspectives. And in doing so, open up some eyes, change some opinions, and at least gain some understanding. Get jurors thinking differently. Who knows? Who knows what kind of domino effect it could have. And actually coming up, I believe next week or the week after, I'm going to be on the Frank Morano show, The Other Side of Midnight. And I believe his show is on from 12 to 5, if I'm not mistaken. But I'll, I'll put it all out. It's on 77, 770 WABC. And I'm going to actually talk about this. I want to talk about this whole BOP issue because I think it's important. And I, I think the I just think people need to know about it. So I'm definitely going to touch on that. So once I get the information, it will be on all social media. I'll let you know you could tune in, you could hear it. And regardless of that, it's a good show. If you get a chance, look up. Frank Morano, 770 WABC, The Other Side of Midnight. It's a good show regardless, uh, and I'm, I'm honored again to be on it. Me and Frank have a good rapport, so I think it'll be a good dialogue. We could just talk about it and at least have a different group of audience hearing it, listening to it, and understand what's going on. Well, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the show. Till next time.